Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. In 1986, John Strom, Frida Love, and Juliana Hatfield started the band Blake Babies. They put out a few records, toured a bunch, and broke up by 1991. But in many ways, their band captured the spirit of indie music of the late 80s and early 90s and defined what it meant to be an independent band. Although a product of their time, there are aspects of the Blake Babies story that feel timeless and universal. We talked to all three members about that time and how they've recently gotten back together to play some shows. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. John Strom is a musician and a lawyer. John, welcome back to The Future of What. Thank you. It's so great to be back. <laughs> it's like you never missed us. Wait. That's right. So today on The Future of What, we're going to talk about you because you have an interesting life. And, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting to people who listen to the show is, okay, I'm a musician. I'm doing the whole musician thing. Mm -hmm. You know, what does my life look like and, and where am I going with this? And, you know, you were a musician in the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. and now you're a lawyer. So. Well, I'm, I'm still a musician. <laughs> Well, I mean, in terms of where the money comes from. Right. Well, actually, uh, I made a few bucks a couple of weeks ago playing music and it felt great. Get and, uh, out. I was trying to trying to convince my bandmates to not pay me because I knew that if I brought it home, it would immediately go to paying, you know, for somebody's soccer outfit or whatever, <laughs> you know, to get the, the porch power washed. It's, you know, I, I play for fun now and thank goodness it's not my source of income. But yeah, I, I had a, I had a decent run there in, in the, uh, in the fabled eighties and nineties yeah. playing music. And I was never quite at the point where I was like, Hey, I'm a professional musician. You know, it was always, <laughs> you know, I'd get paid a little bit of money sometimes and then I'd run out of money and go get a job or whatever. But I, I definitely did it full time. Well, your first band, the first band that I knew you from was Blake Babies. Mm -hmm. And that band started in what, in 86? Yeah, that's right. So I, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, and I was a, I was a music kid. You know, I played, I was in a, in a hardcore band that was touring around regionally when I was in, you know, 10th grade. And I was, you know, my friends and I started an all ages club. I was, I was one of those kids. And by the time I moved to Boston to go to Berkeley College of Music, which I felt was the best choice for somebody that didn't really want to go to college and <laughs> really just wanted to get a band going, I was immediately dug in on, you know, trying to replicate whatever it is I was doing on a grander scale. And that was 85. I moved out there. And that was also around the time that I got pretty burned out on, on the hardcore scene. And I was disappointed by the hardcore scene in Boston, which was very sort of dogmatic and a lot of rules, you know, whereas if you grew up in Southern Indiana, there were, we, if there were rules to punk rock, we didn't know them, you know, mm. you just kind of dress up and get a band going. And <laughs> so I, I made some friends when I, first moved to town. One of them was, was Juliana Hatfield, who was my collaborator in the Blake Babies. And then the guys in the Lemonheads were also early friends I made. And they, they became my crowd, my group of friends. And and my girlfriend from from high school moved out to join me second semester. I was at Berkeley in early eighty six. And, you know, she and Juliana and I were the were were Blake babies. So we started out as just eighty six was really just kind of practicing in the in the Berkeley dorms and uh getting out and playing a few parties and, and you know, 
didn't really launch as a as a real going concern until a year or two later. But we we had a nice run. We we made a few albums for for a label called Mammoth Records, who was based in North Carolina, and we we got to tour the country. We eventually got over to to Europe, and I was simultaneously playing drums in the Lemonheads when it was a bit more underground. And and then when when Blake Babies broke up and Juliana, you know, I guess went solo as it were. Then then I joined Lemonheads full time as a guitar player and did that for a number of years. Then also made records on my own. I had a couple bands and Tenno was one of them. Yes. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. That was, that was like a inappropriately long summary of my, of my music career. Well, I want to go back to, you said you were a hardcore kid and that's hilarious because then Blake Babies could not have been farther from like a hardcore band in my mind. I think it was really a, it was, it was, it was a very conscious reaction against that. And, and I was a drummer in hardcore bands and I loved it. I loved everything about it, but I I had about two years of listening to almost only hardcore music. And by the end of high school, I was kind of done. And, Mm -hmm. and Frida was never really into hardcore. (laughs) She was always into, you know, Velvet Underground and John Prine and, and, you know, Dylan and, you know, all the stuff that that we, we all love for all time. And so she was always kind of pushing in more in a, in the direction of songs. And I, I got into songwriting and, and then Juliana's voice was never really suited for, for anything much more aggressive than what we did. It's, it's sort of a, a bit of a delicate instrument, you know, and, and we figured out how to kind of rock behind her a bit more over, over the course of the band. But early on, it was just arranging the songs in the way that made sense. And, and the first people outside of Boston to really embrace what we were doing back when it was very underground was Calvin Johnson from mm. K records. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we went out and did some dates with uh, a couple of his bands and, you know, they, they really kind of identified with what we were doing. And then when we started making records at Fort Apache, we, they, they, they lost interest, I think, because it was too, too commercial sounding, you know? Mm, yeah. That that kind of gives you a little bit of context for what we were doing very early on and who was responding to it. It was, you know, underground pop is what, what we would call it at the time. And people didn't think of pop music the same way then as they do as they do now. If you say we're a pop band now, they assume you mean top 40 type act. And, and back then there was, as you'll recall, I'm sure there was more of, you know, a self-identifying pop underground where it was about the structure of the songs and the arrangement of the songs and the content of the songs more than the commercial ambition, I guess. Exactly. And yeah, and that meant something very different. I remember seeing Blake Babies and I don't remember where it was because don't get me started about, you know, 30 years ago or whatever this is we're talking about. But (laughs) one of the things I really appreciated was that probably Blake Babies was the first band I ever saw live with a female drummer. Wow. And that was a big, that was a big deal for me because I didn't pick up the drums myself till I was 21 years old, Hmm. partially because I grew up in an apartment in Manhattan, you know, where you can't play drums (laughs) in an apartment in Manhattan. And second of all, because I, you know, I still was sort of, you know, raised in American culture and, you know, girls don't make loud noises like that, you know, and it was such a freeing and amazing experience to see that. I was like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> this is an option. That's great. And and Frida, Frida's a, a wonderful drummer and she sort of fell into it almost seemingly by accident as is going back to high school, but I was learning guitar and, you know, just one afternoon she said, maybe I could play drums. And, you know, she got by my drum kit and, and, you know, usually when somebody says, Hey, let me have a go at that. And you try to teach them drums. And I'm sure, you know, this as well as anyone, it's, it's futile. 
because it's hard <laughs> and people get frustrated after 10 or 15 minutes, but she, she was very quick to pick it up and she very immediately had this distinctive and very steady feel. And, you know, that's really the, now that we're back playing Blake baby shows this past summer and we're doing it, you know, we're doing some this fall as well. It's like, that's, that's, what's notable is, is she, she as a drummer has, has a very, very singular feel and there's, there's nothing, there's nothing macho or powerful about it. You know, she, she's, you know, hits the drums, you know, without a tremendous amount of force, but it's, but it always has a wonderful groove about it. And it's very, very, you know, consistent and dependable. And, and it's, it's a lot to do with the sound of the band. And when we had to go out and tour with a different drummer, one time when we went overseas, it just felt completely different and kind of wrong. So, you know, she was a huge part of what was good about that band. Yeah. And that's, you know, that is another good lesson too, is you don't have to hit the drums. You don't have to have a double kick. You know, it doesn't have to be the most macho thing in the world to be amazing, you know, truly amazing. And now, of course, thank God, we've got tons of fabulous female drummers to point to. I mean, they're they're everywhere now. But I feel like at the time it was a pretty, I mean, I was 15 when you guys started and that was mm. a big deal for me, yeah. you know, to see that. That's great to hear. Well, there's nothing that, back in those days, when if you started a band like that, it was not for commercial ambition. It was not for monetary gain. It was for something else. And, you know, it was a, a, it was certainly for artistic expression, but I think also, it, you know, and, and for fun, but I think also it was about wanting to inspire people, you know, wanting to, to you know, spread this thing of, you know, Let's get a let's get a band together. It doesn't matter if you're a virtuoso or not, as long as you've got some ideas and some cool songs. And and if there was any one thing that we would all want to have come out of it, it would have been you know younger people hearing it and saying, "I want to do that." Is Nothing Ever Happens by Blake Babies. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking with John Strom. Just looking at your bio and looking at who you know, I mean, the number of people that you know that I know at this point is probably insane. But just looking at, you know, I mean, the fact that you were in Lemonheads. Well, Lemonheads came and played at my school when I was in college, mm. and I'm positive that you were in it 
<laughs> in the band at the time. <laughs> he left a wake of destruction behind. I'm yes, sure. he left a wake of destruction. It was like an, you know, and but those were the days when not only, you know, was it a community on the outside, but it was a community on the inside too. So we had that show, that Lemonhead show, in a dorm lounge, right? It was not. A, what was the, what was the school? Grinnell Grinnell College in Grinnell. Oh, Grinnell's Iowa. where my brother went, by the way. Oh, crazy. But, you know, that's what I mean. It's like we, you know, indie rock was a thing that felt accessible. It felt like people could do it. It felt like it could be part of our lives. It wasn't that separation that we find, you know, I mean, there was there was separation and glamour and, you know, the pop stars throughout the history of pop. But I feel like there was that moment in the 80s where we all felt like, hey, I can do this. You know, I know people who do this. This is a thing. Well, I try to I try to get into my own head about what would have motivated me back then because there was no question about what I wanted to do and and my my life was an absolutely straight line until the late 90s when it started to get more difficult to do it and I started to get more frustrating but there was no question about what I wanted to do and it was not about trying to be a rock star or trying to get rich but I still wanted to do it you know desperately and I think it was wanted to be part of of that world and you know just the you know, transcended fun of doing it. And it definitely came out of the, the passion for it definitely came out of the punk scene and, and the feeling of that and the community of that. So I think that, that all the way up until the transformative moment around 91, when, you know, the year punk broke, mm-hmm. it was, it was very much about, you know, underground culture. And, and I didn't get the sense that people were really too ambitious to look too far past that, you know, and, and, and then very quickly after that, it became about more about commerce and things got very confusing. Definitely. And I always, I always point to REM at that time, you know, because when I was listening to REM in college, you know, that was a band that was pretty popular. Like a lot of people knew that band, you know, and they'd done Mm -hmm. records on IRS or whatever, you know, it's, they were on an indie, they were a good, you know, a good solid band, but nobody was, chasing the brass ring. You know what I mean? It it didn't seem like that was the thing. And then by the time I graduated in 93, you know, my band from college, we moved to Minneapolis because we were going to make it in the big city. That's great. And that just tells you where, where we were at in those days because we thought, oh yeah, we'll move to Minneapolis because of course in 93, you know, the industry was there. That's what, I mean, I just remember you know, that's people just thought you were going to go, you know, play the uptown and, you know, an A&R guy was going to sign you. And that was happening. It, it was happening. Yeah. I mean, that was actually yeah. very realistic. Yeah. For a minute, actually, 93 Minneapolis, that was around the time I, I used to, to uh, play sometimes and record often with a band called Polera. Do you remember that? band? Oh, my God. I was totally friends with Jennifer, of course. <laughs> Jennifer, yeah. Well, Ed Ed Ackerson was and, and is to this day one of my best friends, and he and I worked on a lot of records together. But I I worked on that first Polera record, which was '93, yeah. uh, up in Minneapolis at the yeah. Terrarium Studio. And my role was to play one thing in every song. So I would sit on the couch all day, and you know, I'm not going to say exactly what I was doing on the couch, but I was sitting on the couch <laughs> and, and wait till the, I got inspired for that for that you know one sound I was going to put down, which might be a you know a tape loop I worked on for five hours, and it was actually an incredibly creative scene. And that was one of the bands. Actually, that's a good lens into into the business because they made that record and it was very humble at the time. It came out on Twin Town Records, which is a, you know, basically a local label mm-hmm. that had some, some, you know, some big national releases international, but it basically, basically fun- functioned as a community label and they got some good reviews and, and some A&R people got interested in it. And then the next thing you know, there were, you know, there were 
was a bidding war and, you know, it was about deal terms and, you know, people flying the band to New York or LA to take them out for, you know, thousand dollar sushi meals or whatever, very, very quickly. Yeah. And I, I was a fly on the wall for the whole thing. And it was absolutely fascinating. And, and of course, since, you know, listeners are likely not to have heard of Polera. Right. <laughs> but that's a good example. They didn't get to be rock stars because yeah. they signed a huge record deal. And then it was Interscope Records and they signed with Tom Wally. He left the label. They completely changed the direction of the label and, and they kind of got lost in it. And it, it ended up being really good for Ed because he got a bunch of money and he built a studio, which is still to his livelihood to this day. Right. But it was a very strange sort of disorienting time when it was like, hey, you know, we can sit in this basement and make this record and put it out there, there into the world. And then, you know, a month later, they're, they're, you know, there's a limo pulling up in front of your house, you know. Yeah. It's, it was bizarre, you know, especially coming up to the underground and seeing that. And, and my bands were already established on labels at that point. Like Babies Didn't Exist, Lemon Heads were signed to Atlantic. So that was really kind of an early 90s phenomenon. But I will say that in terms of what led me to want to be in the business, it was partly just what I perceived as being the insanity of that entire thing. Right. Right. You know, that, that process and that, you know, and seeing all these bands get, get, you know, artists get signed to deals with major labels and then, you know, feel like they're, you know, kind of approaching the summit, you know, they were, they, they'd done it. They were going to be, you know, have a career, they were going to be huge and then have nothing happen. And, and all the heartbreak associated with that. I was like, this is a really dumb system. <laughs> so that's, that's what led you to decide to get into the business side of it. That was part of it, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't, hostile to labels at the time. You know, I'd come up through indie, so it was fascinating to me. And and Blake Babies had been the subject of a, you know, a lot of sort of a courting, courting from, from major labels. Mm-hmm. So we'd seen it from that side. And, you know, just the whole thing was fascinating to me. And, you know, but it was also, you know, I, I found the whole thing totally depressing. And I knew some people who were in very successful acts during the 90s. And I, I, I could feel from them the pressure they were under to deliver commercial music. I, I didn't like where alternative rock ended up in the in the mid to late nineties, basically becoming a radio format. And when I went to law school, you know, at the end of the nineties, my hope was that I would find a way to be in the business and and you know to to work with artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was that was what what got me to that point. Also, just having a complete mental breakdown where I thought that going to law school was a good idea. <laughs> Do you, do you regret that? <laughs> I don't regret it at all, actually. But, well, this is the thing. You'll probably relate with this, uh, either personally or through, through you know, people that you know. But when I made the decision to go back to school and give up music, it was, it was really depressing, even though it made sense, even though it was a, it was a, uh, I knew it was a wise decision. It was a very depressing decision because the unique sort of insanity that musicians get into who are, who are in record deals, you know, who have working bands is that you're kind of living album cycle to album cycle. Mm -hmm. And you're just looking ahead to the next project you're going to do. And and you have absolute belief that that's the one that's going to carry you to your, to your goals. You know, you have goals in mind and it's like, my goal is I want to own a home. My goal is I want to, you know, make enough money to to support a family or whatever, you know, I mean, not unreasonable goals, but goals that were beyond reach at that point, you know? Right. And then you go through the album cycle and it, you, you'd come out the other end, basically in the same place. And you'd say, that's okay, because, you know, <laughs> we're going to do it again. Right. 
and we're going to get there, you know, this sort of unflinching belief that you're going to get there. And so that's why it's so depressing to get off that track because it's sort of an admission of you didn't get there. Now I have a very different perspective on that now, which is, you know, I absolutely got there because I had an incredible run of, of, you know, nearly a decade of playing music full time. And I got to travel the world and I got to make a bunch of albums. I got to play with incredible musicians. You know, I got to feel what it's like to stand on stage and, you know, play to 10,000 people that know your songs. You know, I got to do it rare things that, you know, most musicians never get to do. And now I look at that as an incredible blessing. But at the time, at the end of that, it was just like, I failed, you know, I didn't get there. And it's such a, it's such a tiny percentage of musicians that get to, you know, spend their life making their living with their own completely uncompromised creative music. You know, I mean, hardly anybody gets to do that, right? It's true. And I see that now more than, more than ever. It's true. But I also think, you know, I feel like there was this golden age and maybe this is just age speaking, but I feel like there was this golden age you know, prior to the internet, when, you know, if you were in a band like Blake Babies or Antenna or Lemonheads prior to them getting signed, you, you know, to a major, you could make a living. You could be a working musician. You could do the album cycle lifestyle and you could be okay. Like it was something that you could actually survive on because the amount of albums you were going to sell was going to, you know, bring some cash in. It wasn't, it, you know, you didn't have no chance of selling, you know, a thousand records, which nowadays is like a thousand records were like, woohoo, which is tragic. But that's, you know, that's the economy today. And then, you know, 91 happened. And I feel like everybody's expectations got really skewed because it was like, we are going to be the next big thing. Or, you know, why aren't we like this band? Everybody was comparing themselves to these other bands that they knew. And, you know, well, this happened for them. Why can't it happen for us? And and I just feel like it, it created this this sort of atmosphere of unrealistic expectation that I think you alluded earlier to not really existing in the early days of, of when you started mm-hmm. out. Well, you cer- certainly weren't, you know, starting some scrappy band and getting a gig at TT the Bears and thinking like this is the path to arenas at the time. <laughs> just what it, what it seemed, seemed ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, it, just, it would have been laughable at the time. Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't. Now I think people do think that. Right. And I, I started to see that in, in the, in the mid nineties, you know, people getting into playing in what I would have previously thought of as underground type bands who are very careerist about it saying like, we well, want to get signed to a label and, you know, without a real nuanced understanding of even what that meant. And another one of the reasons why I felt like I should get into the business side is because very naturally and very organically, especially when I was living in Birmingham in the late nineties, I followed my then girlfriend, now wife there. I lived there for, for, you know, over a decade and people were coming to me for advice about the industry, about Mm -hmm. decisions they should make. And you know, and, and the advice I was giving them was, was, was thoughtful and was, was often helpful. And, and, you know, my thought at the time was I should really find a way to get paid for this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, or find a way to do it in a way that, that, you know, I could actually provide, you know, better resources and better opportunities. But I had a lot of that people coming into, to, you know, to want to talk about what they're trying to do with music and, and, being very careerist about their goals and, you know, like their goals are really about getting signed or, or, or getting famous. And that's one of the things I see now, because now, now that I'm practicing law and I, I represent almost exclusively creative musicians, 
one of the first questions I always ask musicians when, when we have a meeting is, is what their goals are. And, and I hear two basic answers to that question. One of them is my goal is to make my music on my own terms and to make a living. And that's, that's the, that's the goal of the creative musician. That's like the basic template goal Mm -hmm. and express it slightly different ways, but that's what it comes down to. And then the other goal is I want to be the biggest artist in the world. Right. (laughs) And that's, and that's the goal of the, of the commercial musician. Right. You know, it isn't, it isn't about, about, you know, sustainability is, it isn't about, you know, about, about their art or their expression. It's about wanting to be huge. And I, and I don't tell you that because I, I want to disparage either one because, you know, I'm, I'm always grateful when someone's honest about it. I mean, it's, it's a drag when somebody says, I want to, I want to do my work on my own terms. I want to make a living. And then you later find out that they want to be the biggest artist in the world. And you've, you know, given them advice that's probably inappropriate for that, you know, but it's really interesting to start to see that, that, you know, the the way people frame their goals. Absolutely. And I, you know, I was going to, while you're saying that, I was thinking to myself, wow, I wish that the musicians that I talked with these days could be so clear about what their goals are, because what happens with me way more often than that is, you know, you get people who think they want to be a career musician and express themselves and make a living. But really what they want to be is a hobby band that only plays once a month in their hometown and never has to leave their girlfriend. Mm -hmm. You know, that's way more common, but people are really unwilling to admit that, you know, like that's actually really hard to get people to say, because of course, what do you know, you say, what do you want? And they're like, I want to be a rock star. You know, and what the hell does that mean? And you find that you can't do much to help them if they're not if they're not putting more into the, the, themselves, of course. Well, right. We can't put anything more into them than they're willing to put into themselves. It never works. You know, that's just never works. Well, that's also when when managers show up, you know, when when things start to work. And that is one of the frustrating things about the way the industry works now, because all of us try to avoid the projects where it's just about shopping deals, because that's a very frustrating thing to take on if there isn't much going on, you know, trying to convince people like you to, you know, spend five minutes and listen to something, you know, I I don't expect that the people who are the gatekeepers in the industry are going to listen to something just because I say it's good. You know, there has to be more there. And so once, once an act gets to the point where there is some traction and some, some things going on and some, you know, if it's, if you're presenting it to a, a major label, some, you know, some data to analyze or whatever, then, then it can make a lot of sense. But, you know, usually it's more like a, if you build it, they will come kind of situation. And usually the managers start to show up and, and express interest when there is something going on. So it's, it's extremely frustrating for artists who are saying, how do I get a manager? And the answer is just, just keep building it, you know, and they'll show up and they will. Yep. But that's not the most, you know, kind of comforting thing to express to an artist. No. Hey, just keep doing your thing and building it. And, and, you know, they'll show up when the time's right, but it's true. Yeah. That is yeah. how it works. And, and it is true that if a big guns manager is willing to step in and help a true baby act, they can probably find some shortcuts, but they have to have a real incentive because good managers are definitely, you know, in it because they're passionate, but they're also definitely in it because they want to make money. Right. And, and that's a perfect point to end on because, you know, this is a podcast about the music business and it is a business mm-hmm. and people need to understand that. So, you know, as much as it's about love and creativity and art and, and all that stuff. It's also at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to do it full time, it's about money. 
you know, you got to you got to be able to make money. One of the things I'm incredibly grateful for being a musician is that I've I've reached a point or built something where I get to be involved with artists whose music I love and whose whose work I really respect. And that makes it a lot easier for me to dig in and do my job when I really feel like, you know, the music I'm working for is, is, is important. And, and, you know, obviously having spent over 30 years in music, I feel like music is incredibly important. It's in terms of my own priorities, it's very high. You know, I, I, I have my family and, 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 you know, the people in my life take precedence over everything, but music is incredibly important to me. And, you know, the discovery and development side of it is, is incredibly exciting. Absolutely. Well, on that note, John Strom is a musician and a lawyer. You can catch him on the road with Blake Babies this year. So thanks so much for uh, coming back. Thank you so much, Portia. I'm glad to know you're from Grinnell. That's great. was on by Blake Babies. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to Juliana Hatfield and Frida Love. Juliana and Frida, welcome to The Future of What. Hi. 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 Yay. Okay, so I already talked to John separately, and I was actually interviewing him to talk about life as a music lawyer. Ah. But we ended up talking so much about Blake Babies that we just decided to just do the whole episode about Blake Babies. Okay. (laughs) Because I have a theory. I was, you guys were formed in 1986 and I was 15 years old in 1986. And I really feel like Blake Babies was one of those bands of that era that really kind of defined a moment in indie rock that has gone and won't come back, but was very powerful at the time. You know, I mean, Frida, you were such an inspiration to me. I never knew that a woman could play drums. I didn't. I didn't know that that was a thing that one could do. Yeah, there aren't a ton of us out there. Yeah. And then I went on and became a drummer and, and you know, did that whole thing, Aww, which was um, awesome. great. But, you know, it's it's incredible to have role models. So instead of just totally fangirling out, I will start this legitimately and say, would you please tell us the story of how you guys got together? Yeah, I'll let Um, Juliana start, and I could chime in as needed. Well, I was attending the Berkeley College of Music, and John Strom was also attending Berkeley. We didn't didn't know each other when we started school, but I was just, I had transferred from Boston University after one semester there, because all I wanted to do was play in a band. And I didn't really, I was very socially kind of awkward, really shy. I didn't know how to, didn't know how to meet people or get a band together. And I just had no luck at BU. So I figured I sh- I'll go to 
music school and I'll somehow I'll get a band together there. I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to do it. Cause I was just like, so just painfully shy and I didn't talk to anyone. So to make a long story short, a story that's already too long. I was in my dorm room one night just thinking, Oh my God, I, how am I going to get a band together? I, I, I want to die if I can't be in a band. And then there was a knock at my dorm room door and John and Frida were standing there and, and they I opened the door and I said, Hey, I'm John, this is Frida, do you wanna be in a band? <laughs> that's how it happened. Wow. That's totally how it happened. I mean that's um, a short a really short a short version. Frida, do you wanna say more any more yeah. about that? I'll say like a couple of things about it, just that I was hanging out at Berkeley, I wasn't a student there, but John was my boyfriend at the time and so it was around and we noticed Juliana because she really stood out in the like otherwise very kind of heavy metal surroundings of Berkeley. She's mm-hmm. really cool, punk looking mm-hmm. young woman with the leather jacket on and she just she really she looked super cool and we just wanted to know her and we wanted to start a band with her knowing like literally nothing about her. But a friend of John's who lived in the dorm on the same floor had also noticed Juliana. She's quite beautiful as she is. <laughs> And called her crying dream girl, crying dream girl, because she's like really beautiful, but she looked really sad and lonely. So before I knew who she was, before I knew her name and what our future entailed, she was crying dream girl to us. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. That's a great story, partially because I think there's a lot in it. This radio show that I do is is aimed a lot at young people today who are trying to make it mm-hmm. as musicians or songwriters or whatever, you know, to get into the industry. And I think that whole thing of just wanting something, like I know that I want to do this and I don't know how, that's like a huge amount of the battle. You know, just having that goal and having that dream is kind of a big deal. You have to have that. It is. I think you do. When you're first starting out, you have to have a kind of delusional, also like kind of delusional belief in your dreams and your goals. I mean, it may seem delusional, but you kind of have to believe in it that hard in order to have the guts to actually go forward to do. Like when I when I transferred from BU, it was a, a safe choice for me after high school. It was just sort of like an all around good liberal arts college. And but once I was there, my desire or my need to play music and make original music was so strong that I just kind of, I had no choice but to, I gravitated toward Berkeley. Fortunately, I was admitted into Berkeley and I had no idea how I was going to make it happen because, you know, I, I don't know how people started bands. And I just, I went there just kind of blindly thinking and hoping that I would get a band together. Somehow the band would happen. And Berkeley just seemed like a better environment to make that happen than Boston University did. So, yeah. So when you guys got to that point where you actually met each other and started playing as a band, how much had you played before? Like, Frida, had you been playing drums for a while? I'd been playing drums for about a year, not, not for very long, but I did learn how to play a basic drum beat when I was still living in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, and kind of delusionally felt like that was enough. Like I knew everything I needed to know and like ready to start a band. So I was really void by that optimism and that desire to be in a band, whether I was ready 
to do it or not. I had that like intense wanting to be making music and that kind of carried me through. But I had a lot to learn still at that point. I was a bare beginner. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel you because I, when I finally found out that, you know, women could play drums, (laughs) I went and took drum lessons on my college. And after one drum lesson, I said, if I don't play in a band, I will never do this because this is boring. I'm not going to sit in this room and just go thump, thump, thump. So the next day I got in the band. That's great. So I started playing in a band, playing drums after having one drum lesson. Yeah, so it's comparable (laughs) in some ways, but it's actually not a bad way to learn. Like learning in front of people, like doing it badly, it can inspire you to get better pretty fast. Totally. And also just having people who are accepting who are like, okay, you do suck. Right. <laughs> but we are getting there. Like we're we're working on this together. <laughs> Plus the group, you know, the chemistry, musical chemistry and personal chemistry of a group of people together, everyone can buoy each other up, you know, and totally. buoy, buoy each other up and mm-hmm. everyone's weaknesses can kind of mix together to make a sum of a unique strength, I think. Yeah, we were yeah, really lucky absolutely. to have found each other at that moment, for Definitely. sure. Yeah. I felt that. I felt really lucky. Me too. I felt like it, I almost felt like it was like a gift from the universe, you know, it was like, yeah, it, yeah more, it felt like more powerful than luck to me. It was like, Yeah, wow. totally. I, I agree. I still feel that way. Meant to be. Yeah, death, this is like, it felt like destiny. Preordained. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Agreed. No, I, I fully understand that. So you also have a great story about how you got your name, Blake Babies. Do you want to tell us that story? Frida should tell that because that happened before I was in the picture. Okay. Was when the band was still in its conceptual stages, right, Frida? It's true. It's like purely conceptual, but we were so eager. We thought we needed a band name. So John and I agreed that we were going to ask Allen Ginsberg what we should name our band. <laughs> we went to see him do a poetry reading at Harvard University, and we asked him pretty abruptly afterwards, we were lined up, like, Mr. Ginsburg, what should we name our band? And he just said Blake Babies instantly. Wow. That's pretty good. That is amazing. There's a lot of destiny and fate involved in this band. I like it. It's a good story. I know. It, feel, it feels like an honor to have received our name from him, yeah. even, like, especially now after all these years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys got together in this mystical way and then you started, I assume, practicing and playing out on campus. And then and then where did it go from there? How did you guys get to the point where you were like a real band? I don't know. It was just like a lot of practicing, starting to try to get gigs where we could. I think our first show was in the basement of a thrift store, right, Frida? Yeah, it was a place called She's Leaving Home. I just remember all the like racks of clothes around us and people sort of standing in between the clothes in the store. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot. It felt like it, I know the band wasn't together for a long time, but when we were starting out for me, it felt like so, it took so long to make anything happen. It just was like, seemed like it was a struggle. You know, we were, I mean, it was really exciting, but it was hard to get it off the ground in terms of like having, you know, getting a record out and getting a following. It was just like, was a hard Slog, a bit of a slog, but we we just did everything we could think of, you know, like trying to get gigs and then recording really cheaply on the like, overnight shifts at, at studios where our friend T.W. got us into this recording studio at Boston Film Video Foundation. Mm-hmm. They had some recording stuff, and that was our, our first recordings were done in there, I think. 
don't know. I, I'm yeah, not like really... in the middle of the night, though, because it was cheaper to record. Yeah. Or we could kind of, like, sneak in. It definitely felt like we were always pushing really hard and always trying really hard, and it was a huge effort. And just to kind of get to whatever we saw as the next stage. And yeah, it then... never felt like anything was handed to us. It felt like we were just always trying to figure out how to make things happen on our own. Yeah, and, like, sending the, sending, making cassettes and sending the demos out to clubs and to independent record labels and just, like, not getting a whole lot of positive feedback, but still totally believing in it and just, like, always pushing forward to try to keep doing it. And then you did end up putting out a record just a year after you formed, but that was on, like, a pretty small indie, right? It was our own. We, we sent the demo cassettes around to indie labels and things, but there were no takers, so we weren't going to let that stop us, so we just got a loan... I think from my parents probably to make yeah we scraped to it together like your parents and John's parents and I used some of my student loan money like we just literally just scraped together barely enough to press a thousand copies wow yeah a thousand copies of this album that we called nicely nicely and then we started packing them up into record mailers and mailing them all over the place you know to fanzines and I think Frida Frida were you doing something working at like interning at Forced Exposure or something and we got the mailing list from there or something. Like we that. did, and also <laughs> Tang, like the record label that the Lemonheads were on, that uh-huh. Curtis, the owner of Tang, gave us some contacts to. Mm-hmm. We really relied on our friends to help us out at that point. Oh, that's awesome. And there, Priya and I would bring a handful of records to the post office every day or something, or a couple of days, and we'd just mail them out, and we'd hope for someone to respond. And I think we got a couple of Album reviews and fanzines from that, like in Gerard, what was Gerard Cosley's thing, Conflict? Oh, yeah, we did. We got some press but, from him. Yeah, like we got a few reviews and fanzines, and it was really exciting. And, then we, and, you know, some college radio stations around town started playing. I remember the first time we heard a song of ours on the radio, on I think it was WERS. It was so exciting. So exciting. <laughs>
That was Waiting for Heaven by Blake Babies. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. We're talking with Juliana Hatfield and Frida Love. So what, how, how long before you guys went on your first real tour? Well, first real tour, it wasn't a real tour. Again, it was something that was so scraped together. It was kind of pathetic in a way. We, I mean, <laughs> it was beautiful and it was pathetic, but we, we yeah. I mean, there were shows, there was a show where there were literally two people in the crowd and there were four people in the band. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was like, it was that kind of a thing. I know those shows. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows those shows. Those are those are real deal shows. But I don't remember the timeline. Like, Frida, do you remember when we first hit the road? I can't remember. I, I I probably remember a little bit better because I've been writing about this a bit lately. So I think it was maybe in '88 before it was. I think we we went on the tour in part to go meet Mammoth Records, who had become our record label, and we played for them. And I think we might have signed our contract on that tour. So that was just on nicely, nicely that we were touring but we're in the process of, of trying to take things to the next level so i, I think it was right. 88 because i think the election was going on right and they oh yeah and so we mammoth records was this new label in north carolina and they i guess someone at the university of north carolina who also worked at mammoth got a copy of the record that we had sent that's and right. that's how they became interested in us and then eventually you guys, you signed with them, and then you did put out a second record. And what was the difference then once you were signed to a label? You know, how did you find things different? But, well, our lifestyle was pretty much the same. I mean, there was not, there was no big, like, influx of cash or anything <laughs> or in terms no. of how we lived our lives. But we had, we definitely had more of a recording budget, I, right. I guess. I mean, I wasn't really aware of that. We were kind of all kind of sort of like a little bit ignorant about money probably, but we, you know, we had a producer and a better studio. And so the difference in, in sound between the first record and then the first mammoth record is pretty, pretty different, the glaring difference. Right. And that's, you know, that's classic. It's, I always think of the first record that we have from the gossip on Kill Rock Stars that was literally recorded in a bathroom. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you can you can tell the difference between that and the second record, for sure. <laughs> but when I go back and listen to Nicely Nicely, the first thing that we did ourselves, it, there's such a nice scrappy charm to it. I really like how it sounds. I do too mm -hmm. now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, I remember wanting to distance myself from it, thinking it was so rough. And now, like, my ears like that, like, crunchy sound. Me too. Um, maybe in some ways, sort of sonically, it's more pleasing than the more polished stuff, which sounds a little more dated in some ways. Isn't that interesting? Technology can really date stuff too, you know, exactly the way that things were recorded. There was that, you know, that 80s gated snare sound That's that the you thing. can always That's tell exactly. Right there, yep. I, well, I think, yeah. I think we were really lucky though. I think we escaped any of that. I think I, when I listen to Earwig and Sunburn, I, I don't think they sound dated. I think they sound really kind of timeless. And I mean, sonically, I think we yeah, avoided... We did work with really smart people. We were lucky yeah. there. The engineers people with, with good, people with good, really good taste. Yeah. So then, were you guys, did you guys still stay, did you stay in school throughout this whole process or did you guys drop out or what did you do? I did. I stayed in for four years and I graduated. Woohoo. <laughs> I don't, I don't talk about that a lot 
but yeah, I did. I don't know if John, did John graduate? I can't remember. John was just short of graduating. He hung in there for a while and I was just in and out of school myself. I graduated college when I was 35 <laughs> and had two babies. So it go. happened a little bit later, but yeah, that just wasn't my focus at the time. Yeah. Yeah. My husband graduated from college in, when he was 45. Mm, so. yeah, that, that can work. That, that can, yeah. work. can work for you. I went back to school when I was 41. I went, I got, I was really glad I had my degree from Berkeley because it was applying to graduate programs and I, and I was able to get into school of the medium of fine arts for this postgraduate year thing. That was really great. Cool. Our art school for a year when I was 41. And that was, that was really excellent. Amazing. So the band broke up in 93. I think we broke up before that. I we think it might have been that. 91, maybe. Like, yeah. It seemed like 1991, we were still on tour, but kind of in the process of breaking up. And I don't think we played any after 91. John would know. John's better at this kind of thing. but I know my so- my first solo album, Hey Babe, came out. Well, the date on the album, I think it says 91, I think. Yeah, so it that came makes- out in 91 oh. or 92. Okay. So we were broken up by then. Okay. So, yeah, Juliana, you went on to have a solo career. Yeah. And Frida, you and John were in Antenna together. That's right. And Antenna kind of morphed into the Mysteries of Life, which was my band with my husband, Jake, who was the bass player in Antenna. So there's sort of a continuum there, kind of one band yeah. unfolding into another. It's amazing how that can, you know, last a lifetime, these these chance, friend, you know, friendships that you, these meetings that you make at somebody's college room door. I know. I'm still kind of in it, really. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Very cool. And now you guys are on tour again. You guys are doing some Blake Babies shows. Yeah, it's wild. How did that? How did that come about? I don't know. No. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Someone, did, someone unearthed these demos from the, from the Sunburn album that were recorded you from know. Earwig demos from Earwig. Oh, sorry, sorry. That's right. Earwig demo, the first album demos. So, sorry, the second album, which is the first Mammoth album. And it's, it's confusing, but because some people say that Earwig is our first album, but Nicely Nicely was the first album. So somehow, did John find these demos? I don't He I don't did. Know. John found them. They'd been in storage, and they ended up in his hands. Okay. So John found these old demos and thought they sounded really good. And so then there was this seed of an idea, like, we could release these. And there was some interest in that, and then that led to doing a few shows. Yeah, and the shows were fun, and so we just decided to do a few more. It's like we're taking it very incrementally. Like I have no idea. We have some shows booked right now, but I have no idea if we'll do more after that. But they have been really fun so far. Yeah. Cool. Do you think you guys might make a new record? Are you doing any new songs, or are you just playing old stuff? John and Frida have been writing stuff, and... I think we're going to try to get some new songs together. I'm going to try to, you know, work with some of the stuff they have and come up with some of of my own stuff and then see if we can make some songs come out of it as a band. That's exciting. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. It's all kind of a fun surprise. Like, I don't think any of us expected that we'd be talking about playing shows or writing new songs together. But I like the surprise of it, the unexpectedness of like the Blake Babies, considering putting new material together in 2016. It's not what I expected. I like that, though. Well, your whole journey has been pretty mystical, it sounds like, from the very beginning. 
Yeah, I mean, there I were, like that. There was, it was not all good times. I mean, there, there was, it was a short, when we were originally together, it was like, it was kind of tough at times. And we had it, there was a lot of, I don't know, it was, it was tough, it was, but. True. You know, there were a bunch of personnel changes around the three of us. and But it, we ended up with a really good body of work I'm really proud of. And I ended up knowing John and Frida, and I'm really glad to still know them. Yeah. That's amazing. I I do not speak to my guitar player anymore, so you guys are lucky. (laughs) That happens. But I'm, you know, super close with my bass player, and that's been, you know, 16 years of friendship or something. So that's, it's always good when you can hang on. Yeah. Yeah, And I just like that I've been able to get into a different place and that we like we were able to go through definitely like some hard years and like years when we weren't in contact, but that we can work together and it feels really friendly and, and, surprisingly easy to just be together and make music together. I like that we can fall back on that original chemistry. Awesome. Well, Frida Love and Juliana Hatfield, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Nice talking to you. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Blake Babies and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>